0: Father God, you who are sovereign over everything, come and speak to us now by your word. Open our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. From next Sunday we are going to be jumping back into Deuteronomy. So for those who were here and those who weren't last year, we spent about six months in Deuteronomy from chapter 1 to 11. And then we took a break. And uh, next Sunday, we will jump back in to um, Deuteronomy from chapter 12. And we'll go at a bit of a quicker pace for those who are nervous about um, the fact that we spent six months going through 10 chapters and we've still got Um, Almost 30 to go. We'll we'll sort of spend about three or four months looking at the rest of Deuteronomy. And there's uh, a few reasons why I want to do this. So the the rest of the book of Deuteronomy is all about God's instructions for his worshipping community. And though it was written 3000 years ago, it is totally relevant for us today as a worshipping community for how we are to faithfully serve our God. And before we jump back into Deuteronomy, I want to look at Joshua chapter 1 because Joshua uh, is the very next book and Joshua chapter 1 is the very next chapter after the book of Deuteronomy. It's the fulfillment of God's people finally entering into the promised land. And in Joshua, we have this commission. We have this commission from God to Joshua and his people Commission, if you think of it as God giving his people a mission, God giving them a task to do and one that he will uh, accomplish through them, one that he promises to work through them. So a co-mission, he is going to, uh, he gives us a mission, but then he promises to actually be with us and accomplish his purposes through us. In the mission. So, this is kind of like if you're familiar with the term of the Great Commission in Matthew 28, this is like another Great Commission uh, in Joshua chapter 1. And there are two reasons why I want to look at this today. The first reason is because we will see in Joshua chapter 1 that central to God's instructions for his people, central to this mission that he gives them, is their obedience. To his instruction. So God gives them a mission, which is to say, he gives them a purpose. He gives them a task to do. And central to that task, central to their existence, is their obedience to his words. So we will see as we look at Joshua chapter 1 that this is central to this mission that the God of heaven and earth gives to his people. Central to it is their obedience to his commands. The second reason is because we will see in Joshua chapter 1 and we will see in Matthew 28, which is commonly known as the Great Commission, that our mission today, our purpose, follows the very same or very similar pattern that God gives to His people, that God gave to His people 3,000 years ago. So we will see that in Joshua chapter 1, God giving this commission for His people to enter into the Promised Land to do all of these things, to be obedient to him, promising that he will be with them. It's following the same pattern as we have now. So if you think about a movie, a good movie that has one storyline going through it, it's not a disjointed, weird movie. It's just a good classic movie that has one simple storyline for people with simple minds like me to follow. And there might be different scenes and different actors in that movie, but there is one storyline and they all play their part in this one storyline. Similarly, there is one mission of God. There's one mission that he has had from before the foundation of the world. And there is this missional thread that is woven throughout scripture, this missional thread that's woven throughout all of history. There is one mission And we play a part in that one mission. We may look slightly different because we're playing a different scene than Israel was 3,000 years ago. But it's one mission. And so we will see in Joshua 1 and Matthew 28. And if you look at it through the lens of Scripture as a whole, there is this one missional thread that goes through. So we can uh, learn a lot from Joshua chapter 1. So there's four main things that we will see uh, in the commission that god gives to his people in joshua and then the commission that god gives to his people in matthew 28 and that is firstly god states his authority over everything he's the god of heaven and earth he owns everything so he starts his commission by saying hey i own everything now you're going to enter into it or you're going to take control of it because i have authority over it Then. He gives his desire for his people to spread out and make him known to kind of seep into the cracks and crevices of society to seep in and just make his fame known throughout the lands. And then central is this third aspect, obedience, the people's obedience to his word and then reassurance. So you have God's authority, his call to spread out and make him known, our obedience and then his reassurance that he is with us. So let's look at Joshua chapter one. If you have your Bibles, just make sure you have them open to Joshua chapter one. And from verse two, we read uh, God saying to Joshua, his servant, and therefore to the people of Israel as well. Therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all the people into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given to you just as I promised to Moses. So this is the same commission, if you remember the story in Exodus and Deuteronomy that God gives to Moses after he calls the people out of Egypt. He saves them from slavery. And then he says, hey, I've got this land that I'm going to give to you. It's a beautiful land. And you're going to spread into it so long as you're obedient to me. And God now gives this commission to Joshua after Moses has passed on. And he says, you're going to spread in and you're going to be my people. You're going to be a worshipping community in the sight of all the nations. So God's purpose is that his people would be distinct, but that they would be distinct for all to see, for all of the nations to look on so that as we read in Deuteronomy 4, people would look on and say, oh, wow, what a wise and understanding people. This people who has a God so near to them. So that's God's hope for his people. He gives this commission and here he states his authority. Notice he says, every place that I have given to you. So it's not like God kind of said to the people that were in the land or he said to his people, hey, I made a deal with these people. I purchased it from them, um, you know, or they're going to loan it to me and I'm going to give it to you, like subletting it to you. No, he says, I own everything. I'm giving it to you. It's mine. There may be other people in there, but I own it. I own them. And I want you to go in and settle into this land. So God has authority over everything. And now he calls his people to spread out into the land. So from the wilderness, this is in verse four, from the wilderness that they have just come from, down south to Lebanon, to the north, Euphrates to the east, and then the Great Sea to the west. Do you see the picture? He's saying, spread out everywhere. I want you to spread in to this land and then spread out and make my name known. So there's this uh, clear authority that God has and he's called to spread out then. We get to verses seven and eight where we see what is central to God's mission, what is central to his mission for his people, and that is obedience to God's word. So he says, Be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. So the success of God's people in their mission, the success of us in our mission is directly tied to our obedience to God's instructions. Our missional success is tied to whether we will obey God's instructions. Notice the temptation to swerve off just to the left or to the right. So he says, hey, don't don't get distracted. Don't look off to the right or to the left. Don't take your eyes off of me and what I have commanded you. Don't go off to the right or to the left, but stay obedient to me. You could imagine for the people who have been through 40 years of wilderness wanderings, 40 years of very difficult times, and then they finally settle into this promised land, they finally got it, they're there. You could imagine the temptation that they would have to sort of um, add in a little bit of foreign worship, you know, to please their new neighbors, to say, hey, we're not that prudish, like I'll take some foreign worship, I'll take some Baal worship, Or you could imagine the temptation that they would have to maybe offer a more cost-effective sacrifice, like a blind lamb that is basically worthless as opposed to an unblemished lamb that they could make money off. And you could imagine that they would be tempted to just swerve a little bit to the right or to the left of God's instructions to offer an unblemished lamb and say, you know what? God won't know. Like it's still a lamb. this runt of the litter he's blind and deaf let's just offer him as a bit of a sacrifice and keep the good one for us you could see the temptation to swerve to the left or to the right and for us for us as the 21st century church particularly for us as a church which is a minority in our culture there is great temptation to swerve to the left Or to the right, to to adjust a few little things to make it a little bit easier for us to be followers of Jesus. To swerve to the left or to the right, to to make our message a little bit more palatable. To not seem so weird. There's temptation to do that. There's temptations to accommodate certain redefinitions of things like sexuality and marriage. To just seem more whether you want to use the term woke or whatever, to just seem more relevant when we seem like an irrelevant minority. There's temptations to do that. Everyone has that little part we went through in Galatians of how Paul says, I'm not a people pleaser. And there's that temptation that we have. We want to please people. We want to be liked. I don't want to be that guy that everyone hates. There's temptation to kind of swerve to the left and to the right. But here we take this application from what God says to Joshua. We don't turn to the right or to the left, particularly for us as a new community. We don't turn to the right or to the left looking for some new strategy, some new church growth strategy, something else that might look a little bit appealing. We trust the tried and tested truths of the Bible that has worked for God's people for thousands of years. We don't turn to the left or to the right. We stand firm upon the Word of God. We, we trust in the power of the spoken Word of God. As we are going about our task of being witnesses, we trust that it doesn't matter how eloquent we are in our speech. It matters whether we are faithful to our task of sharing the gospel with our neighbors, of loving them and caring for them. So the foundation for our missional success will be to walk in obedience to God's word, to not swerve to the left or to the right. But to stand firm upon what has been handed down. And this kind of obedience will only come as we are saturated in the Word. So notice that God says in verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night. This is more than just a few times a week, Right? It's more than even once a day. It says day and night. Like it's to meditate upon the word, to have this actually just seeping into your, uh, the deepest part of you requires deep devotion. We meditate upon the word of God day and night. So that's that's the obedience. So we've seen uh, God's authority, his call to spread out. We've seen his uh, call for us to be obedient as central to his mission and now finally his reassurance. In verse 9, God comforts Joshua and the people of Israel by saying, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. He says the same thing in verse 5. Uh, He says, No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. God is not a distant God that He commands His people to do something and says, right, tell me when it's done. You know, like sort of sometimes parents, when we get a bit lazy, you might say, just go do this and tell me when you're done with it. God doesn't actually do that. He doesn't stay distant. He says, here, go do this, and I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be with you, actually working within you as you faithfully follow my call for you to walk in obedience to you. He promises to accomplish that which he asks of his people. Isn't that wonderfully liberating? He actually promises to accomplish that which he asks of his people. That's why we take courage. That's why we're strong and courageous. It's not like God saying, be strong and courageous. Look at the man you've become. He's saying, you're a weak and frail jar of clay. Be strong and courageous because my surpassing glory will be shown through you, weak jar of clay. That's something that we can hope in. If it depends upon me, that's hopeless. But since it depends upon God's surpassing power, therefore we receive this call to be strong and courageous. I mean, that's the pattern that God always uses. Just think of Gideon and his army where they had all these people and God just continues to say to them, hey, you've got too many people because if you go to war with this many people, there's a part of you that will think that you accomplished this. So I want you to cut it down to just 300 people so that it will be clear that I did this through you. That's wonderfully comforting for us. The Lord is with us. Now, let's look at how this same pattern is in the Great Commission in Matthew 28. The Great Commission, for those playing at home, is just a title that was added like a thousand years after. So that's not in scripture, but it's a helpful title. But the Great Commission is really just something that was added uh, not that long ago in the scheme of church history. But the reason it's called the Great Commission is because it's a very clear, succinct wording of our mission as the church, of the commission that God gives to his people. So in Matthew 28, we see the same pattern. Here in verse 18 of Matthew 28, we read the risen Christ. So this is post-crucifixion post-resurrection, he presents himself to his disciples and he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So just as God instructs the Israelites to spread out and be obedient because He owns everything because it's my land to give away, just as God did that for the people of Israel. Now, he says to his people, the church, to his disciples and to the church, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. I have it. It's mine. I reign over everything. Therefore, go. That's the basis of the commission. Christ reigns over every square inch of the planet earth he reigns over it all and as we go about our task of witnessing we're doing it on his ground not on secular ground but on his ground he reigns over it so there's his authority and then you see the call to spread out in verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So again, the Israelites were meant to spread out into the land, into all this beautiful land. And they were to settle themselves there as a worshiping community. Now, God's people, we are to spread out across the globe to spread out far and wide from areas of Tuggeranong to Tanzania, all over the globe, making disciples of all nations. And some of you would know that's that's people groups. So the word is referring to people groups. And right now there are still 2,000 plus unreached people groups in the world. So not unreached as if like I grew up here in Tuggerong and went 22 years without ever really hearing the gospel. I don't think I ever heard it. I never really came across any Christians who were willing to share with me, but that's not, a, we're not in an unreached area. People have access to the gospel. We're here meeting in public ground. There are still 2000 people groups across the world that have no access to the gospel, no access at all. And so I'm hoping that some of You might actually be people that will then go and take up your cross and follow Jesus to the uh, slums of India or to the pits of Somalia, somewhere where there is just no access to the gospel and play your part in the Great Commission in reaching these people groups and bringing them into the worshiping community. So this is what baptism signifies here in the Great Commission, where Jesus says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is, of course, where uh, individuals publicly announce their allegiance to Christ by being baptized And therefore, as you go under the water, you are saying, I'm dead to to this life of sin. And then the water is a cleansing. It has this picture of cleansing. So you're cleansed from your sin. And then just as Christ was raised to life, so you are raised to newness of life. But the thing is, you aren't baptized then to become some lone ranger Christian, never part of a community That's not the point. See, the Great Commission is given to the disciples who then form the church. There is authority. So you are actually baptized into a body. You're baptized into a church. You're baptized into a worshiping community. This is a call to be part of a worshiping community. So that's how we understand our mission. We we have this call to make disciples disciples to spread out, make disciples, which is to say we make learners and followers of Jesus from among all people groups so that they then come into this worshipping community, just like God has this call for Israel to be a community in the sight of all the nations, so they're this sort of tight-knit community that walks in obedience to His commands, so that all people would look upon. Likewise, we now Go about our tasks, spreading the gospel, talking about this great news that we have of salvation. And we then want people to come into the community of God's people. And then you have obedience. So there's Jesus saying he has authority. There's the call to spread out, make disciples. And then you have obedience here in verse 20. Connected to making disciples, Jesus says, you're to teach them to observe, which is to keep To keep all that I have commanded to you. So, the way we demonstrate that we are followers of Christ, the way we demonstrate that we are disciples, and also our task in making disciples is that we are obedient to God's word and that we call others into obedience. We are obedient to God's word and we call others into obedience. So Jesus very clearly says in John 14, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. It's not like some sort of optional extra for us. He's saying, no, this will be the evidence of your love for me. You will obey my commandments. That'll be the the demonstration of your love. Paul starts his monumental letter to the Romans, this huge colossal letter, and he says, we as apostles have been given grace and apostleship to call the Gentiles to the obedience of the faith. That's why we've been given this task. We get to call all of the people who don't know about God's instructions for how they are to live, for what is best for them. We get to call them into the obedience of the faith. So this is central to our mission. And finally, we have the reassurance while undertaking this mission. So verse 20, Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the same word of reassurance that God gives to Joshua and his people. I will not leave you nor forsake you. I'm with you. I am with you wherever you go. So we see the same pattern, God's authority over everything he's called to spread out spread into the places that God reigns over, the central theme of obedience to God's word and then the comfort that he is with us. This is the same pattern from God's commission 3,000 years ago to his commission to his disciples 2,000 years ago that we have the same commission. We're following the same pattern. So what does this mean for us? Well, if you haven't gathered by now If you would say that you are following Jesus, then you have the non-refundable invitation and command to partake in God's mission. It's like God saying, here it is, no take backs. You want to follow me, you join in on my mission. That's it. Not an optional extra. We all join in on the mission. It may look different from context to context, person to person, but we all join in on the mission. So what I want to finish with is three ways that we can apply this missionally in our context. Three ways that we can apply this, three ways that we can respond to this. The first is that we reclaim the public square. So what I mean by that, the public square is in our, our neighborhoods, shopping centers, public schools. We, we want to reclaim the public square. So um, if you spend enough time in public um, and you're socially aware enough, it might feel like uh, Jesus is not particularly welcome in certain areas. It feels a bit weird to say that. You know how we're in a, a church now, we can probably say things that you probably wouldn't say in the workplace. Even though you believe it, you sort of turn it down a little bit. And that's that's kind of the goal of secularism is to sort of push Jesus into the closet. You know, the goal of secularism is that you would keep Jesus Monday to Friday in your closet. You can bring him out on a Sunday to do your Christian thing, but then you put him back in. Don't bring him into the workplace. So it makes us feel like Jesus doesn't reign over that. Like when you walk through the hypodome, everyone should still call it the hypodome. When you walk through the hypodome, it doesn't feel like Uh, Jesus really reigns there, right? It just feels like there's ignorance to God. But the reality is that Christ reigns over every single square inch of that land. He reigns over it. It's his. He owns it. And so just as God commands the Israelites to take the land and just as Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, therefore go, we reclaim the public square. We reclaim the public square for the name of Christ. And I don't think this necessarily means we stand on our soapbox outside of the hyperdome and start proclaiming. You might want to do that. And if you can do it tastefully, then I would say go for it. But I don't think it necessarily means like, you know, being um, obnoxious in the middle of the food court and and saying it. Uh, I think what it means for us is to have practical ways, like at its core, it means to reject the sacred secular divide. It it means to, to say, I'm rejecting this idea that I have to turn down my Christianity anywhere I go. I'm rejecting this idea that the workplace is not an appropriate place for me to, uh, in gracious and responsible ways, talk about my faith in Christ, because it's not my belief, it's the truth. And I think you can do that in ways that aren't necessarily obnoxious, right? So I think there's practical ways that we can do this, that we can reclaim the public square, like quite simply gathering to read the Bible with someone else and pray at a cafe, like it's nice to do that at home, but it's also nice to do that in a public place. That way you're not interrupting people, but it's not nice just to reiterate to yourself and to others who might be overhearing that, hey, this is a place that Jesus reigns over. So we're going to talk about him. We're going to pray because we don't turn down our Christianity. We don't stop being a follower of Christ in public. We are always following him or It may mean small things like being unashamed and open about our trust in Christ in the workplace. So like when someone asks you how you're going, you might be able to say, I'm not doing too well, but you know what? Uh, It's just such a relief that I have a God who is going to sustain me. And yeah, it might come off as a little bit weird. It certainly would have to me. But if that's the truth, why would you turn it down? Why would you turn that down for the sake of others? We have to reject that sort of sacred, secular divide. And just in small little ways, that's genuine. And ironically, I actually think that becomes appealing to people because the whole society wants authenticity. Authenticity is to be genuine, to to actually say what you believe and believe what you say. There are simple things like this that we can do to reclaim the public square. So we don't turn down our outspoken love for Jesus just for the sake of a secular society. The second application is that we learn so that we may teach. So knowing and meditating on the word of God is essential to the follower of Jesus. We have to know and we have to meditate upon the word of God. And we, we see this in God's word to Joshua. We see it in the great commission. We see obedience, knowing the word of God is necessary. Now, Very quickly, there are two sides to this. We ourselves have to be in intentional practices of reading. We have to know the Word of God. We have to have discipline because we're disciples to know the Word of God so that we may grow in our understanding of all that the Lord has taught us. And I think an easy way for us as a brand new community to do that is to be in things like a Bible reading plan together. And what I would love to do this year, particularly as we jump back into Deuteronomy, is actually have a Bible reading plan that we do. Nothing too full on, but just something that we are so that we are all in the word together so that it becomes normal to be able to talk about uh, passages in the word. Not like, again, you're not trying to make a spiritual power play on people and and be able to rally off these passages that you know, but it's just so that we can use the word to stir one another on. And I think a reading plan for us is a very practical way to do that. The second side of learning so that we may teach uh, is that as we grow as learners, we have to teach others who are brought in. So, The Great Commission is very simply both an invitation and command to be a disciple and to make disciples. It's a call to be a disciple and to make disciples. So it's a call to be a learner and then to make learners, which is a call to be a teacher. And we all receive this command. We all receive this call. We learn so that we may teach and equip. And that's an invitation to all of you. Not just the pastors or elders. It's an invitation to all of you to be a disciple and to make disciples. And just lastly, the third application as I finish. We live with a radical selflessness because God is with us. How comforting to just simply know this fact that God is with us. The God who created everything. The God who, who, who carved these mountains. The God who by a mere rebuke dries up the sea, who created everything that we can see. This huge, huge God is with us. He is with us. The follower of Jesus doesn't have to ascend to God, but God condescends to us in Jesus Christ and he is with us now by his spirit to accomplish his purpose in us. And we have to intellectually like we have to understand this so much that it transforms us internally like it transforms us inside out we have to know this truth that God is with us he is with us we have to understand what Paul means when he says work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works within you to will and to do for his good pleasure work it out because he's the one working within you The result and fruit of this knowledge is the kind of selfless and radical life of service that looks totally different from everyone else in this world. That's the result of this knowledge that God is with me in this commission that he has given. My life is totally wrapped up in his purpose. Therefore, my life is not my own. So I can live with this radical selflessness that is totally given to this Mission, a radical selflessness that throws ourselves into situations that no one else in this self preserving world would. Like quitting a high paying corporate job in order to go and reach some of those people groups that have no access to the gospel. Like totally leaving that behind. Or, like some of us have done, leaving family and moving to a brand new city, trying to find houses and jobs in order to establish a new community here in an area that is in need. And this only comes when you know and depend upon your all-powerful God who promises to be with you. This can't come. You can fake this for a little bit, but you can't sustain this unless you truly know that God is with you. It's different to everyone else because a life as you're brought up within this world to just depend upon yourself a life that depends upon self is just self-preserving it seeks comfort it's not going to seek the radical life of selflessness they stay safe they care about their image but the life that depends upon god follows him in obedience in a way that actually disregards yourself for the sake of something greater It almost looks a little bit reckless to the world. And that is our call. And we can do that. We can be strong and courageous, not because we have some bold entrepreneur spirit that we can sort of make this happen, but actually because we have a God who promises to be with us. That's why. And so we're going to sing, and I might just invite Andrew up um, now as we sing uh, this song that's on the other side of the sheet. Um, And uh, one of the lines, I think, of the chorus um, says, in the darkness, God will keep me. He will stay and never sleep. This song is is about God being with us. And I just want to encourage us now to not think about this in sort of a self-therapeutic way, like God is with me. That makes me comforting you know, just sort of then you internalize it. I want you to think about this truth of God being with you in the sense that you have this commission, we have this commission to live selflessly, to follow this invitation and command. And the reason we can be bold and courageous in it, even when it seems reckless, is because God is with us. He is with us. He will not leave us nor forsake us. He will accomplish his purpose through us. As we sing this think about this commission think about this invitation and command that we have been given um, and sing it with joy as we trust that he will not leave us nor forsake us and after we sing we'll finish by taking the lord's supper together